Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Fisher Investments Market Insights Podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. My name is Naj Srinivas, Corporate Communications Group Manager here at the firm, and I'm joined today by research analyst Scott Botterman. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Naj. Scott, you cover emerging markets here at the firm, and I wanted to walk through just a couple of very common emerging markets questions that we get from clients out on the road and talking to their investment counselors here today. Absolutely. So some of the topics that have been in the news, MSCI, the index provider, recently announced that they'd be including China into their emerging markets index. What's the impact of this for investors and what does it really mean? Well, I think first off, I think it's worth defining what the A shares are and what the H shares are because there's two types of markets. Most people, when they're out buying Chinese equities, they're buying uh, the shares that are traded in Hong Kong, which are the H shares where what's really opened up recently was added to the index was the A shares, which were traded only on mainland China, and for the most part have really only been purchased and traded by locals in the Chinese market. Um, The last four years, MSCI has been contemplating including those A shares in their primary emerging markets index, which ultimately would roll up to their their ACWI index, all-country world index. And Part of the reason why it hasn't been included is because there's still significant capital controls. It's very difficult to get money in and out of China. They opened it up a little bit using their QFI program, which basically was a qualified investor program, but there's still limitations. You can only take out a set amount of money out of the money that you invest each year. It's about 30% of the total investment. So it's not really ideal for most managers because they need to have that liquidity. What really changed the game, though, was when they opened up two Connect programs, one to Shenzhen and one to Shanghai. That allowed investors to trade A shares without having to have that QFI requirement in order to have a better flow in and out of China. There is a quota on that, and that's part of the reason why, while the overall market capitalization of the A share market is about $3 trillion, they're only including 222 companies that represent about 700 billion of that. And further, they're only including about 5% of that market cap because of those quotas in place. So when you really think about how much equity is being added to the benchmark, you're talking roughly about $35 billion. So a very, very small drop in the bucket. What's the market cap of Apple by contrast? And basically all of the 222, if you fully included them, Apple is larger. So in comparison, this is a very small drop in the bucket. It's only going to represent about 70 basis points or 0.7% of the MSCI EM index. So this isn't a a really, really huge tidal wave move. This is actually much more symbolic. In a lot of ways, yes. I think MSCI is kind of giving China a nod that they have made some reforms. They have increased... uh, kind of remove some of the restrictions that were in place. But in the past, other countries have also had these inclusion ratios, but they've been much higher. So South Korea, I think, was about 20% when it was added in the 90s. Taiwan was around that same percent as well. China's at 5% and not even for their full index. So they have a long way to go until they even get to that full inclusion. Now, if you were to fully include the 222 companies or add more of the A shares in, China would go from about a 25% weight in the benchmark to about 40%. But that's going to take probably 5 to 10 years. That's how long it took South Korea and Taiwan. So 
while this is a nice nod to them for making some progress, there's a lot of room that they still have to go and a lot of improvements they have to make until they get to the full inclusion. And this is really more impactful, but something to monitor as time goes on, but it's going to be more based on the reforms they do, not necessarily MSCI's announcements. Those are what the reforms are going to be more of a catalyst than anything else. So this is something that investors should really be watching over the next decade, potentially a couple of decades, not necessarily something they need to be too concerned about in the next six months, 18 months. Right. And I, and I think it's important that while they've been added, it's still good to evaluate the companies that are in here. A lot of these A-share companies tend to be of lower quality. They have more debt on their balance sheets. Um, they tend to be aimed more towards the older Chinese economy. So the next natural question is, what are the types of things that MSCI considers in admitting a country into emerging markets from the frontier markets, and then by extension into developed markets from emerging markets? Well, I mean, a lot of it comes down to capital controls. I mean, that's the biggest component. Um, Argentina was rejected yesterday, and that was somewhat of a surprise to some people. From inclusion, from in. inclusion from frontier into emerging markets. And the reason that they were excluded is because there's still a certain degree of capital. They, they did open up their capital markets more, but it was only very recently. And MSCI in their note basically said that we need to see some more time because these could be reversed. And that's the big component is how easy is it for capital to move in and out of these markets? How much, how much of a restriction is there? For example, Nigeria is actually being considered to be removed from even the frontier index because of very strict capital controls. They weren't moved out this time because they recently opened up a new window for capital to get out, but that's being evaluated by MSCI as well. So that's the big component there. As you try to get into the more developed markets, it's really somewhat the composition of the companies, the capital controls, and also to a certain degree, corporate governance. Um, so those are all different factors that people are evaluating for their inclusion. And they do always consult the investing world. So it's a little bit of a back and forth between asset managers um, because they ask their opinions about how easy it is for them to trade. They want to have an actual feel for is this something that's investable by, by managers because otherwise it doesn't make sense to include it in a benchmark if not everyone can trade it. Now, most investors are probably aware that there are different index providers. MSCI is just one. Standard & Poor's that provides the S&P 500 is another. Um, do most of these index providers, are, are they uniform? Are they fairly aligned in their views on these countries? And which ones are making it into that developed market world? Which ones belong in the emerging markets world versus frontier market? Or is there a lot of disparity between them? Um, there's some disparity. I mean, for the most part, they're in line. I think the biggest difference between the big global indices out there, there's the FTSE and then there's MSCI. And the big discrepancy that exists is MSCI considers South Korea to be an emerging economy, whereas FTSE considers it to be developed. And, you know, you think about South Korea does tend to have a more developed economy. You have companies like Samsung that are quite large, more developed, Hyundai, a lot of auto manufacturers. And so it is kind of on that border, and there's, that's the big discrepancy. But for the most part, 
they're more or less the same. You're getting the similar types of exposure from a country standpoint. And a FTSE, of course, is an independent company now, but it was once a tie-up between the Financial Times, the UK publication, and the London Stock Exchange, which was thereafter rolled out into its own organization. Correct. And they actually recently uh, merged with Russell, which does a lot of the US-oriented indexes like the Russell 2000 value and 1000 growth. So staying on the topic of China, one of the stories that emerged about a month ago now was Moody's, the rating agency, downgrading Chinese debt. What do they do? Why do they do it? And is this another indication of China potentially having big debt woes that are going to cause it to have a hard economic landing? I think what's always important to remember about the the credit rating agencies is they're more reactive than they are proactive. Essentially, Moody's downgraded China because not necessarily of large amounts of sovereign debt, but more towards large amounts of corporate debt. So corporate corporations in China, a lot of them are also state-owned. So they've accumulated large amounts of debt. And so the belief is that if these companies default, the Chinese government would step in and bail them out, which they don't really have to do. But that was the rationale, basically, that you have a large amount of corporate debt. Um, this has been widely known for several years. It's been run up, I'd say, for you know peaks really in 2015. So now Moody's is coming in where you've already started to see the, the, a little bit of deleveraging within corporate China, and they're downgrading, downgrading now. Probably would have made more sense when you're actually accumulating the debt as opposed to where it's starting to roll over. Again, I think these credit rating agencies tend to get to the, the story a little bit late. So most of what is happened is already priced into the market and people are aware. Um, it's going to be hard pressed to find someone who isn't aware of high debt loads in China. Overall, the corporate fundamentals in China are also improving. So you're seeing stronger earnings growth. So these companies' ability to service that debt is improving. And China does have $3 trillion in excess reserves that they could always address some of these issues. Probably won't have to, or at least on that grand of scale. But they're relatively secure. So getting that quote-unquote hard landing caused by debt problems, it's not likely to happen in the near future. So staying on the Asian continent, let's talk about India. Several months ago, Prime Minister, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced a demonetization program, which would basically demonetize 90% of the notes in circulation in India with the stated objective of fighting corruption. How did that work out for India? Did they accomplish the stated objective? I, th I think what's always challenging is there's the stated objectives and then there's the other beliefs. Um, I think there's there was the to fight corruption and remove some of the markets. A lot of goods are paid for just in cash in India. Homes are purchased, so it's a good, easy to launder money in India. Not too many people overall. You know, a very small percent of the population actually pays taxes. And that's why the cash-driven society is a problem, because there's just not that much tax being collected, because everything's done in cash. So some of it was to do that. One of the government's big efforts has been to get the population into the banking system. So they've done a registry system in order to get everyone's thumbprints and basically biometrics into a national database so that it's easier for people to open up banking accounts. Well, people weren't actually doing it. Well, what's one way in order to get people to actually open up a banking account? Tell them the money that they're holding is going to be worthless. So it requires everyone to go into a bank and exchange the money for the new bills or also just put it into a checking account. 
And that was actually pretty successful. You did see a lot of citizens go in, exchange their money, put money into the account, and it's stayed there. So it's been good, some stickiness there. So you have increased awareness and basically of the banking system and allow people that hadn't been exposed to it before to get some exposure to it. And that's what you kind of want to see in emerging economies is moving towards that banking system more developed. Um, the other thing was is there was a major election going on. If you're going to pay off people for votes, what's a good way to prevent your opposition party from doing well? Well, remove the cash that would be used for bribes. So, I mean, India is known for a little bit of that corruption still from a political standpoint. So that's kind of what the different views are. It did impact the economy at the time. If you think about taking all of the cash out of people's pockets at any given time, it's going to hurt retail sales. But it really was very short-lived. I mean, there's only so long that you can put off buying a lot of the goods that you would normally purchase. So a lot of what happened in Q4 that wasn't purchased was eventually picked up in Q1. Um, the real estate sectors were hurt a little bit as well. But again, it's kind of resumed nor uh, normalcy. And you've seen India do rather well, and it's been one of the better performing emerging markets countries uh, year to date. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Brazil and the car wash scandal. Will you give our listeners just a little bit of a primer on what's been going on there? <laughs> and where President Temer stands today? Well, Brazil has been kind of wrought in scandal associated with their state-owned companies. Um, so think about the Petrobras and the Vale. And a lot of local sourcing for equipment makers would basically bribe politicians in order to influence decisions on who's getting what contracts for these big state operations. And a lot of it happened at this one car wash that's been called the car wash scandal. Uh, you've already had one president basically impeached tied to her involvement in the scandal. That was Rousseff. But then her replacement, Michelle Temer, is also basically been linked to the same scandals. And there was recently a recording of him accepting a bribe. And so opposition parties were trying to get him impeached as well but not in the same channel that they did for Rousseff. They basically were trying to invalidate the election that had Rousseff voted president and him as vice president. Um, unfortunately, well, not necessarily fortunately or unfortunately, they were unable to get enough votes in order to push them through, so he is still in office. I mean, Brazil has been struggling through this for quite some time, and it's it's not very surprising when you see how they've structured their government with the state-owned enterprises. One of our concerns for Brazil was when they announced local sourcing laws back in 2012, because that basically opens up the possibility in a lot of ways to more corruption. And that's played out pretty true, true, to, court, uh, true to what we anticipated. Um, I mean, Timur has been focusing on doing a lot of reforms in Brazil. But it's going to be very difficult for him to push those through now with this kind of dark mark on his uh, reputation. So in terms of the reforms that he was pushing through on basically pensions and also government spending, they're likely not to come, going to come to fruition. He's more or less a, a lame duck at this point. One of the interesting things that we've talked about here is corruption, both in places like India, places like Brazil, you know, tied to our very first topic a little earlier today about... MSCI admitting 
countries into the developed markets from the emerging markets or from frontier markets to emerging markets. Mm-hmm. With these stories in India and Brazil, you really see why possibly, or at least one reason why they're still in the emerging markets. Exactly. I mean, corporate governance in the developed world is just a lot more efficient. You have more of a separation. You don't have as many state-owned enterprises where you're seeing that level of corruption. I mean, obviously there is usually some level of it. It's just much higher in some of these other countries. And and that is something that when you're investing in emerging markets, the political impact of some of these scandals can be much greater. It can lead to a lot of volatility. South Africa recently has had some issues with it as well. So, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon and it happens pretty regularly. So there is a higher degree of political risk within some of these countries. And so these index providers are really being the arbiters of, of risk in investing in these countries and how they classify them for investors. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it, again, they're just trying to look at it from a holistic standpoint and make a comparison of what's more like the other. And, and I think emerging markets, you do have those deficiencies from a, a, a corporate governance standpoint, from a political um, corruption standpoint. It's just, again, they're on a different playing field. So one last question is all we really have time for today. There's been a lot of talk about what the Fed's doing. The Fed just very recently here announced that they'd be hiking interest rates in this country another quarter of a percentage point. The fear is that this has a big impact on emerging markets countries, that as interest rates in the United States go up, you'll have a lot of capital flight from these emerging markets countries, which will impact their economies, and they'll have to prop up their own currencies. And in the past, that's been problematic. What are our views on that today? Well, I mean, it has been problematic in the past, but it's a very different time period. Um, A lot of the emerging markets countries that struggled the last time that the U.S. went through a big rate hike cycle was because they issued a lot of dollar-denominated debt or they had pegged their currency to the dollar. So as the dollar strengthened, they kept on having to find ways in order to shore up their currency or pay off their their debts. And it was becoming more difficult with the devaluation of their currency. What's different today is these countries aren't issuing dollar-denominated debt. So you don't have that link, basically, as the dollar strengthened it. It has magnifies their weakness of their currency because they have to pay off this debt. They also don't have those pegs in place anymore. They've free floated their currencies. That's what really led to the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s was all of the unwinding of these pegs and dollar-denominated debt. So as the Fed raises rates and say you do get a stronger dollar, it's likely not going to impact these countries as much. There, there is still some fear of that being in place, but these countries have stronger foreign currency reserves, less debt on their balance sheets, and basically less of a tie to the U.S. dollar than they have in the past. And another thing that I would point out is if you look historically in terms of how the dollar has behaved in rate height cycles, it usually appreciates more in advance of the rate hike cycle. And once you actually get into where the Fed's consistently raising rates, the dollar on average is down about 3% over those historical periods. So where we are now is we're in the midst of that. And, and we've seen a couple of rate hikes already this year. Most people would say, oh, the dollar's going to go up. Well, in fact, it's, it's down on the year. So it's pretty consistent to what we've seen historically because so much of that has already been priced in advance. People anticipate those rate hikes. So, you know, I think overall it's a much stronger fundamental emerging market world when it comes to ties to the dollar. And also most of the dollar appreciation might be behind us or it's just not going to be as impactful 
now that we've actually gotten into the, the meaty part of the rate hike cycle. You know, it reminds me at the beginning of 2015, before the Fed actually started hiking rates, of course, the first rate hike was in December 2015, the second was in December 2016, uh, the third in March, and then the fourth just very recently here. Mm -hmm. But it reminds me, before that very first rate hike in December 2015, you had a lot of emerging market central bankers who were basically telling the Fed, go ahead and get on with it already. They weren't too concerned about the Fed hiking rates. They were actually well prepared for it, which is your point. Right. I think they just wanted the uncertainty to be removed. And, and keep in mind, they had to go through the taper tantrum. When Bernanke first mentioned that they were going to start tapering purchases, it led to that same concern of a strong dollar impacting these emerging markets. And we moved past that. And then we started getting to the rate hike cycle, and that fear started to bubble back up again. They just wanted to show how solid they were. Get it out of the way, remove that uncertainty, show that, that you're not seeing large capital flights, and then the world can move on from it. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to what we saw with the U.S. election. We just want to get through it, establish what's happening, and oh, it's not as bad as we thought, and then you could move, and sentiment will normalize after it being overly dour for a lot of these situations. So you might see some volatility in the short term, but in the long term, it's the fundamentals that matter most. That, that old Benjamin Graham quote, markets are voting machines in the short term, but weighing machines in the long term. Exactly. Well, Scott, thank you very much for joining us today. That's unfortunately all we have time for. For more podcasts, videos, and articles, please visit our marketminder.com. You can now also follow Ken Fisher, founder of Fisher Investments, on Twitter at Kenneth L. Fisher. Thanks for listening. Scott, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2017.